Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. Hey everybody, great to see you again. We are diving right into Ephesians chapter 4. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, if you're driving, don't worry about this part, but uh, grab your Bible, grab a pen, um, grab your phone, whatever you need to get your Bible in front of you. We're going to jump right into Ephesians chapter 4. All right, so I'm going to just read a bit of a longer passage or the the, the full passage that actually we'll be talking about over the next two weeks. Uh, so here we go. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 are the verses we are covering today. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, okay? So we've already talked about this. You can go back to some of the Ephesians stuff in the fall of last year. Uh, we have unpacked all of the spiritual gifts at length, so I'm not going to unpack these, but I'm just giving you this for context's sake. Um, Here we go, number 11. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will be, uh, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. All right, before we dive in, let me just take a moment to pray, okay? Father, we humble ourselves before you. Uh, We humble ourselves, Jesus, before you. Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves before you. And we're asking that as we just dive into your word today, as we dive into scripture today, that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, that you would bring revelation and instruction and understanding to us. We just acknowledge and admit that we don't know you like we should know you. We don't understand you Uh, like we should. And so we're asking for you to bring a depth and level of knowing and understanding today that we have not previously had. We love you uh, and we're thankful for you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So let's just dive into this. And I actually want to just start by, again, giving context. Context is extremely important, not just the context uh, of historical uh, nature, like we've talked about, Paul's writing to 
uh, a group of people in Asia Minor. Specifically, this book is addressed to Ephesus, but it was most likely expected that this book would make its way around Asia Minor to the different cities there. So that's historical context. Um, there's other forms of context that are important for us to understand, literary context, and also the context of what is in and around the passage that we are studying. And uh, I want to just, for context's sake, in everything we're talking about today, just jump up to chapter 4, verse 1. And this is the, therefore, I, a prisoner, for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling for which you have been called by God. So the context of what Paul is talking about here is in light of your calling. In light of your calling, his urging, his begging is to live a life worthy of that. So that's important to keep in mind. And actually the greater context of the uh, you know, live a life worthy of your calling. Paul says, therefore, so that therefore is a conjunction that's meant to carry on sort of and explain the previous thoughts that Paul has had. So what I actually did, I'm going to read this directly. What I did was I started at Ephesians 1 and just went through and covered the, the major sort of therefore statements, the important doctrinal and theological issues that Paul is raising, that he's bringing to light for them. These are the things that are the therefore that then lead to now how you are supposed to live. All right, so we've talked about this. Ephesians is split almost perfectly in half with doctrine and, and what we are to believe about God, what we are to believe about Jesus, what we are to believe about the Holy Spirit, and what we are to believe about ourselves, and what we are to believe about the nature of opposing forces against us. So it's half how we are to think of God. The other half is how we are to then live, okay? So we're now the living part, but the context is important. And so uh, this is my summary of what Paul has said. This is the therefore, all right? I'm just going to read it because I couldn't memorize it <laughs> very well. So here's the context, and this is starting all the way back in Ephesians 1. Because God is rich in mercy and loved us so much, he gave us life in Christ when he raised him from the dead, 2 verses 4 and 5. It is only by God's grace that we have been saved, 2 5, when we believed, 2 8. It's a gift from God, uh, 1 8 and 9, because we are God's masterpiece, 2 verse 10. We are loved and chosen, 1 verse 3, adopted, 1 verse 5, purchased, 1 14, and belong, 1 6, to the Son, 1 6. We have been given the Holy Spirit, 1 13, been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, 1 3, have been given all wisdom and understanding, 1.8, and have the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead, 1.20. Because we are raised from the dead with Christ and seated with him in heavenly places, 2 verse 7, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence, 3 verse 12, where his glorious and unlimited resources can empower us with inner strength through his spirit, 316, by giving us both the understanding and experience of the love of God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, 318 and 19. 
It is in the understanding and experience of the love of Christ that we will produce deep, strong roots and be made complete with all the fullness of life and power of God. Okay, so this is the therefore. This is That's like a snapshot of all of this high theology, this high doctrine of Paul's. And he says, in light of all of that, in light of everything that God has done for you, in light of the access that you have spiritually, in light of the reality that in the spiritual realm, the heavenly realm, the supernatural realm, you are currently seated with Christ. And not only are you seated with him, you have access to come before the throne of God in light of what God has done for you and choosing you and loving you and adopting you and giving you the fullness of his inheritance. The In light of the fact that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in light of all of that, in light of your increasing experience, with the love of God, in light of all of that, live a life worthy of your calling. He moves on from there to express in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 2 and 3, that our calling is directly carried by or linked to our character. Notice how Paul moves from, you know, this idea that we are called by God right into character issues, not into um, sort of mechanics, of gifting yet. He's talking about that in a few verses, but first it's character. And we need to understand as we are unpacking the verses we are going to today that our calling is carried by our character. He talks about the need to express ourselves in humility, gentleness, patience, and peace. And then he moves on to the spiritual gifts. Again, we've covered those in detail, so I'm not going to today. But all I want to make sure that we remember is that the gifts that Paul is talking about, all of them, and, and these, this is not, um, uh, um, a thorough list by Paul's standards. He cites other gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Romans 12. So the list that we find here in Ephesians 4 is not, uh, full or complete. But these gifts, all of them are for today. New Testament scholar and expert in the book of Ephesians, Clinton E. Arnold, says it this way. Paul has already noted that apostles served a foundational function in the early church. That's from uh, chapter 2, verse 20. This passage is different now. So Paul is now, as he's talking about the gifts given by God, by the grace of God for the church, in 4, Ephesians 4, it's different than in 2.20. However, that uh, Paul is now, in Ephesians 4, he's now not reflecting back on the beginnings of the church, but is speaking about its present and ongoing structure. Christ is continuing to give these leaders to the church for the equipping of the individual members and facilitating their growth to maturity. All right, Marcus Barth says it this way, in Ephesians 4 verse 11, it is assumed that the church at all times needs the witness of apostles and prophets. The author of this epistle did not anticipate that the inspired an enthusiastic ministry was to be absorbed by and disappear into offices and officers bare of the Holy Spirit and resentful of any reference to spiritual things. Ephesians 4 does not contain the faintest hint that the charismatic 
character of all church ministries was restricted to a certain period of church history and was later to die out. So the gifts that Paul is giving us here, this is so important for context. The gifts that he's outlining here are for today and they're necessary. We're gonna find out a little bit more how necessary they are. They are instruments for our growth, okay? So our calling is carried by our character, number one. Number two, our calling is constructed or it's built on or equipped as we are exposed to and served by the whole body using all of the gifts that the Spirit has given. And this is what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that uh, what we need are some sort of spiritual elites, a class of Christians different than everybody else, a spiritually elite class of people who are functioning in just one or two of the gifts that what we need uh, for the body of Christ is for just teachers or just preachers or just shepherds. Paul is saying actually for the whole body to be healthy, it needs to be exposed to and built up with and immersed in the gifts and life of the whole body. We need people in the church that have prophetic gifting. We need people that have apostolic gifting and of course, we have a small asterisk there because we're not talking about apostolic in the nature of the first apostles only, but apostolic in the gifting to, to, to forge ahead in, in new territories and areas. People gifted with structure and system and vision for what could be for the church of the future. Um, uh, what Paul is saying is we need all of these working together that your life and my life, we need to be exposed to people operating in these gifts in order for us to be balanced and healthy and whole. The issue for much of our lives, like let's just be honest, even for our church together, even for Mountain Park, we don't see these gifts in operation all the time. Um, they are at times, but infrequently at best. And what Paul is saying here is it's not natural. If a human body needs all of these elements to be whole and natural, we can't just sever off limbs of the body that we don't like or limbs of the body that we're uncomfortable with and just assume that that body is going to function in the way it was designed. And much of our church life um, let's be honest, again, much of the expression that we find on an average week-to-week, month-to-month basis in our church only really touches on a few of the gifts at best. And at worst, you know, only one or two of them. And Paul is saying you need all of these things. So our calling is carried by our character, all right, and that's the first in the priority list, but it's constructed and built up as we're exposed and, and served by everyone else. We need each other. We need to come out of the woodwork and begin walking in and interacting with and engaging in the life of the Spirit, the gifting that He's given you and me, sharpening each other, spurring each other on and equipping each other. Marcus Barth says this, in summary, the task of the special ministers mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 is to be servants 
in that ministry which is entrusted to the whole church. I want you to just really listen to me here or listen to Marcus. Their place is not above. So the this kind of um, reality that we've created with pastors and leaders in the church held on these high pedestals. We've just seen again recently with Ravi Zacharias, the devastating consequences of our Western view of um, sort of the elite status of pastors, the um, the celebrity nature of our church culture is dysfunctional and evil in its core. Paul is not saying you need an elite level of people. He's saying that those people that are serving the church through their gifting in this way are actually beneath. They're below. They're serving from under. Their place is not above, but below the great number of saints who are not adorned with resounding titles. Every one of the special ministers is a pastor of God's flock who understands himself as a minister to ministers. All right, that's so important. Clinton E. Arnold again says, the model Paul presents is therefore one of mutual service in the community and not one of professional serving a group of consumers. So I don't even know, um, I've been deeply wrestling with this and I don't know all of the answers to this, but we are heading on a trajectory to upend the structure that we've all come um, become used to in church life where the pastors and professional leaders are elevated to this status where they actually just do everything for everyone else. There's no growth happening. What Paul is saying is we need the whole life of the body working together. We are built up when we are exposed to all of the gifts functioning. And it's messy sometimes. It certainly is. Look at the Corinthian church. It was messy. Look at the Ephesian church. You know, later on in Paul's life, when he's um, meeting the Ephesian leaders for the last time, he's saying, look, I know that people are going to come in like wolves and tear the sheep apart. There's going to be false doctrine and people's experiences aren't going to line up with truth. And there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff. But that didn't stop Paul from engaging in it. And we've been led by this great fear of what if things go sideways? What if, um, you know, we have... Uh, we're exposed to things that maybe don't fully line up with scripture. What do we do? Well, this is the point of the whole body coming together. We need teachers of doctrine. We need pastors who shepherd and walk with people. We need uh, people operating in the prophetic. We need people with apostolic gifts. We need all of them. We need people with gifts of mercy and healing, administrative gifts, tongues, all of that stuff. We need it all working together. We need all of these parts together because they are the parts that Paul is saying are the parts of the body that God designed. I want you to remember this as we talk about uh, really maturity in Christ. God designed these. Who are we to diminish their value? Or who are we to sever them off because we're uncomfortable with them or don't like them? We, These are designed by God for the building up of the life of the church. They're distributed by the Holy Spirit. All right? So we move on to uh, 
from, from here into verse 13. All right, so Paul is saying, look, you know what? You've been given a calling by God. Uh, you've been told that you, you, like, we need to pay attention to and we need to um, be aware of what's happening internally. The stewardship of our character is of essential value and need. But we all have also been given spiritual gifts by God. These are not gifts that are just innate to us out of our own flesh. We can't do these apart from God's activity in our life. So we need character. We need the gifting of God. And it's because we're moving toward a goal. What is that goal? We find out in verse 13. Um, it's a verse 13 is Paul speaking about a movement toward a goal that we are all participants of. He says, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. The goal that we're moving toward is maturity. And in order for maturity to take place, we need all of these things that Paul has been talking about so far in the book of Ephesians. Very specifically in this verse, number one, we need unity in our faith. All right, what is Paul in general saying here? We need unity in what we believe about Jesus. Okay, this is like a starting point. And again, go back to chapter one, two, and three. Paul is laying out there the proper doctrine or understanding of God, understanding of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and ourselves, and the world around us, the kingdom of darkness as well, the demonic kingdom ruled by the devil. Uh, Paul is laying out a right understanding. And if we are going to move toward maturity as the whole body of Christ, we need a unified understanding of what we believe about Christ, his work, and its relevance in our life. We have to get the basics right. The whole Bible, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's about the triune God, in fact, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God's desire for humanity, God's interaction with humanity, God's goal for humanity. It, the whole thing is about God. The whole thing is about Jesus. Jesus is the subject matter of all of this from Genesis to Revelation. It, the, the, the text that we have is God's narrative, his story about what his plan in designing the world and in creating humanity and restoring us to himself through Jesus Christ is all about. It's God's involvement and interaction with humanity and his creation. So we need, uh, before we go anywhere else, we need a unity of our faith in what we believe about Jesus. The origins of creation and mankind speak of Jesus's role in them. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. You go to Colossians. Actually, let's just turn there real quick. Colossians 1, 15 and 20, all right? So these are all speaking about Jesus. These inform a right understanding or a right belief of Jesus, all right? So Colossians 1, 15 and 20, this is Paul speaking. He says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And we see Jesus as the one who existed before any of that existed. For through him, through Jesus, God created everything. So Jesus was there in creation. God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made 
things we can see and things we can't see. Jesus is the author of the natural and the supernatural and the spiritual, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him, Jesus, and for him, Jesus. He is the object of all worship and glory. Everything has been made through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. That's the preeminence of Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So there we get in, you know, whatever, 10 verses there, Paul's condensing snapshot of human history and the involvement of Jesus in it. So Jesus is there at the beginning of creation. Uh, You can look at John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. All right, that's speaking of Jesus. So we move on from creation to the origin of sin and its devastating consequences. We're now in Genesis 3, 1 to 13, and how Jesus would play a role, a central role in God's plan to restore humanity back for himself, okay? So this is where we have Ephesians 1, verses 4 to 14, all right? And this is where Paul is saying, look, God's plan, which used to be a mystery, but isn't a mystery anymore, was to actually restore humanity back to God. But what do we find in Genesis 3? Um, God is prophetically speaking about someone being Jesus that he would raise up, that he would raise up to crush the head of the serpent, the devil, to destroy the work of the devil, Way back in Genesis 3, right after sin, right after the fall of mankind, God prophetically speaks and says, I'm going to raise someone up who will destroy the work of the devil. He will crush his head and the serpent will bite at its heel. Speaking of the crucifixion, the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus is all through scripture. In its creation, he's found in this story of the consequence of the fall of man and God's prophetic promise for how he would restore that. The whole Bible leads to God's plan of redemption and restoration through Jesus's birth, life, death, and resurrection. We go back to Genesis 3, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Uh, Ephesians chapter one and two are the story of God's restoration plan through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. Again, Colossians 1, 13, we just read that. So Jesus is not only present in creation, He's present as God's promise after the fall of mankind. And we see all through the Bible, God's plan of redemption is is focused on, is hinging on, is hanging on Jesus. 
So we as a church, we belong to the Mennonite Brethren body of churches, and our church confession, our condensed one about Jesus is this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is God. That's an essential belief. We need unity on this. This is what Paul is saying. We need unity of faith. We need unity of right belief at who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we can actually come into faith and salvation through him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. Jesus lived a sinless human life and offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for the sins of all men by dying on the cross. He arose from the dead after three days to demonstrate his power over sin and death. He ascended to heaven and will return again to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. You can look up Matthew 1, 22 and 23, Isaiah 9, 6, John 1, 1 to 5, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Just pause this and go back if you want to get these, or I'll give you my notes if you want. Romans 1, 3 and 4, Acts 1, 9 to 11, Colossians 2, 9 to 11, 1 Timothy 6, 14 and 15. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Again, this is what Paul is saying, is we need unity in our faith, our belief, our basic doctrinal beliefs about Jesus. Jesus is the way, John 14, 6, the truth and the life. Jesus is not a way. He's not a truth. Jesus is not a truth, just like you say you, you, you know, your truth or my truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is not one of many ways to eternal life and salvation. He is the way and he is the life. Jesus said that he is the doorway. He's the gateway. Apart from him, you cannot, you cannot be reconciled to God. So this is essential belief that we need to be unified on as a church. These are not negotiable. They're not up for debate. They're not up for questioning. As a church, we believe that Jesus is God. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus lived a sinless life, that Jesus willingly gave up his life even to death, death on a cross, to atone for our sin, to be the propitiation for our sin, to actually not only just, you know, uh, atone for our sin, but to satisfy the wrath of God. And then Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He rose from the dead bodily, becoming now the new Adam, the restoration of God's plan back to Genesis, back to Eden. Jesus is the beginning again. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, it says in the Bible. He is the way. No one comes to the Father except through him. So what Paul is saying is essential is, yes, our, our, our character carries our calling. And, um, you know, our our gifts and, and living in the body and, and the way that we are supposed to engage in the body of Christ constructs us, it builds us up and equips us. And the purpose of that is so that we come to a right understanding, a right belief of the basics. First, 
who Jesus is, what he's done, who we are, our need for him, our need for redemption. This is what we believe as a church. And these will never change. These will never change. And Paul is saying that that is essential. But Paul goes on to say that um, just believing right doctrine is not the, the whole thing. It's the first side of the coin. It's essential that we believe the right things about Jesus and that we're unified in that belief. But Paul moves on to say in there, let me just turn to it real quick so I don't misquote it. Paul goes on to say, Um, in verse 13. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith, okay, in our faith. Uh, What do we believe about Jesus and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature? So faith and knowledge of his Son, those two are not the same. They're two different sides of the same coin. So our baseline starting position is unity in what we believe about Jesus, what he's done, and how we are to live under him. But knowledge of God's son is next. Uh, Pastor Brenda talked about this word to know, and we're gonna do a bit of a deeper dive in that right now. Um, That word know in the Greek is uh, yinosko, and it means to recognize or be aware of, to learn, acquire information, imply personal, implying personal means. So there's an activity on the part of the one inquiring the information. But that's not it. It means to be familiar with, to learn to know through personal experience, okay? It also means to understand, to come to know or perceive, to acknowledge and indicate that one does know. It also means to have, and so I'm just gonna give a disclaimer here. If you are under the age of, 13 or 14, either cover your ears for the rest of the message or you can step out now. So we're now moving into PG-13 for the remainder of this message, all right? La, 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 give you a few seconds. Okay, great. So uh, lastly, to know, yinosko means to have sexual intercourse. Okay, that's from the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. All right. So this word to know is different than what Paul is talking about. This is the other side of the coin that we need that's essential in our spiritual life. So there's different senses at play here of what that word means. In the New Living Translation, in the New Testament, it's found 234 times, okay? I'm just gonna give you a bit of a rundown here. Again, if you want my notes, I'm happy to email them to you. So. Uh, Senses of UNOSCO in New Testament uses. Number one, to know experientially, specifically experientially. 181 of the 234 instances in the New Testament are to know experientially, which means this is their definition of it, to know or have knowledge about someone or something as acquired through observation or the senses, okay? observation or the senses, our bodily senses, to know something or someone experientially. All right, uh, number two, to grasp intellectually. All right, so I want you to recognize what's happening here. We've, We've dropped from 181 of 234 to 16, 16 times Uh, UNESCO is used to refer to a grasping of intellectual 
knowledge, to get the meaning of something, okay? Number three, to be known or a state of being known, 13 of 234, to become or ascertained with certainty. Next one, to perceive, all right? These are all the different senses, the 11 times of 234, to become aware of through the senses again. Next one, to find out or to learn something, five of 234, to learn or find something out by making an inquiry or other effort. Next one, to be known, okay? So these are the next, all of the ones left are two instances out of 234. To be known, to be acquainted or familiarized to another, to have intercourse, all right? I don't think I need to explain that one. Um, I tried my first small foray into kind of the birds and the bees with my oldest son, and that was a disaster, pretty much. So I'm not going to go into that story now, but uh, just ask Rochelle if you are interested in that story. All right, next, to know or discern, uh, which is to know the nature or character of, and lastly, to know how, to know how to do or perform something. So this is the a very multifaceted, uh, the, the senses of that word, yonosko, which means to know. This is the word that Paul is talking about, of needing to know or have the knowledge of God's Son. This word is used in many, uh, many verses and in uh, many contexts. I want to just highlight a few of them so we get a bigger, kind of more rounded out picture of this. John 17, 3. All right. And pay attention here because there's some things that um, are pretty significant for us that we need to grasp here. John 17, 3. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent. What I want to specifically point out is the the lemma sense or the biblical sense here is a knowing experientially. And, And all sort of scholarship that I've read on this agree with this. What Jesus is not talking about is a knowing intellectually or information-based knowing. So Jesus is not talking about just simply the half of the coin we've already been talking about. Jesus is not talking about being able to articulate or define doctrine or theology, to have doctrine memorized. Uh, Those are great things. And we need to have that. We, We need that. Those are essential, but they're only one half of the coin. Jesus is talking about an experiential knowing here in John 17, 3. I'm just going to read you a quote from D.A. Carson. He says, to know God is to be transformed and thus be introduced to a life that could not otherwise be experienced. To know God requires experiential activity from God to us and vice versa. Indeed, knowing Indeed, knowledge of Jesus Christ, whom God has sent, is the ultimate access to knowledge of God. Nor is this knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ merely intellectual, mere information, though obviously it includes information. In a gospel that ranks belief no less central than knowledge to the acquisition of eternal life, it is clear that the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ entails fellowship. Trust, personal relationship, and faith. There is no more powerful evangelistic theme. David Guzik says it this way, eternal life 
is found in an experiential knowledge of God and revealed in Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer, in his famous seminal book called Knowing God, if you have not read that, that is uh, an incredible place to start in this, in what Paul is talking about in terms of knowing God. J.I. Packer says this about the conviction which uh, prompted him to write the book, ignorance of both God's ways and of the practice of communion with him. Okay, so ignorance of both his ways, doctrinal understanding and knowledge, but also the practice and communion with him lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. So what we need to grasp and understand is uh, that knowing is not just informational based, which is, I'm not denigrating that, I'm not diminishing that. We need, like I've just spent time, we need the right doctrine, we need the right understanding, we need unity in what we believe about Jesus. But believing in that way is not the whole picture. Paul says that knowing God experientially is necessary. J.I. Packer says, as we embark on uh, any kind of Bible study, we need to ask ourselves, and I'm quoting here, we need to ask ourselves, what is my ultimate aim and object in occupying my mind with these things? What do I intend to do with my knowledge about God once I have it? For the fact that we have to face this If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud and conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us and we shall come to think of ourselves as cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and our grasp of it. To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. We need to guard our hearts against such an attitude and pray to be kept from it. As we saw earlier, there can be no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. Again, going back to what we've talked about, there's no spiritual health without doctrinal knowledge. But it is equally true that there can be no spiritual health with it if it is sought for the wrong purpose and valued by the wrong standard. So this is what Paul is saying, is the beginning place of maturity, all right? So maturity is the goal. We know that uh, we need maturity in our character, all right? That's what Paul was talking about in the expression of love, patience, and peace, and kindness, and all of that stuff. We need maturity in our character. We need the body itself. We need the operation of all of the gifts to bring about maturity and build us up. We need right doctrine. We need a right understanding, a baseline understanding of the truth about who Jesus is and who we are and our need for him for salvation, for his lordship over our life. And we need to know him. So this is the kind of complex ball of wax that Paul is talking about. Jesus clarifies for us the difference between knowing about him and knowing him. Matthew 7, I want to just turn there with you. I didn't really, this didn't become apparent to me. I never read this 
or saw this this way before until recently. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many of you will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Okay, what is Jesus talking about here? This is, this is sobering. As sobering as sobering gets, Jesus is saying it's not the person who can articulate right doctrine. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, it's not your ability to articulate right doctrine that gains you entrance into the kingdom of God. And on the other side of the coin, it's not your supernatural even activity for God. It's not what you do for God that gains you entrance. Jesus said, I will reply, I never knew you. That word knew is yonosko. That's the same word we're talking about. And when you look that up and you, you study all about it, the, the sense of that word that Jesus is using is to know God experientially. What Jesus is saying is it's neither a matter of just espousing the right beliefs it's not being able to memorize right beliefs. It's not even just simply acknowledging right beliefs. And on the other side, it's not doing super spiritual things. It's not serving. It's not even in the miraculous working of the Spirit of God. It's in deep, intimate relationship. This is the knowing that Jesus is calling us to. It's a, a deep, intimate relationship. I want to point out something else to you. In Matthew 7, 13, Jesus is talking about the narrow gate. But I want to propose to you that the narrow gate that Jesus is talking about is not purely a doctrinal gate. In fact, in the context that Jesus uses this statement, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. The context of Jesus saying that is not a doctrinal context. It's a living and intimacy context. We need to, he's talking about this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, how you live. The call of Jesus is to know him intimately, experientially, to walk with him and know him, not just know about him. That narrow gate is not just a doctrinal knowledge or acknowledgement. It's um, experiential knowledge via intimacy in relationship and the formation of our thinking, attitudes, character, behavior, and actions into Christ-likeness. That's the narrow gate. This is what Jesus is preaching about with hard-hitting verse after verse, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. He just keeps throwing the haymakers at us. That, that, that knowledge of God must impact. It must drive us to intimacy in our relationship. And it must form, it, it must transform and form our thinking and our attitudes, our behaviors, our actions, 
are speaking. And the, the purpose is to become like Christ, not just to know about him or not just do things for him. And often our churches get trapped in the ditches on the other side of this. So let's just come back as we wrap this up to Paul's illustration. Paul in Ephesians is talking about the body of Christ. He uses this illustration in other parts of his teaching, but this body is meant to give us a description of the journey of growth, all right? So the maturing growth, um, but the purpose of the maturing and growth and activity of the body is for readiness for marriage as a bride to her groom. He says in verse 16, Ephesians 4, verse 16, he says this, if I can find it here. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. The purpose of the body, the, the purpose of the growth and maturity of the body is to be ready for marriage. This now is where we're touching on the experiential, intimate sense of that word to know. The, the sense of that word to know that draws out, you know, sexual intercourse. The, the Bible is filled with, let me just read you 2 Corinthians 11.2. Um, this is Paul's teaching. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. I promised you as a bride to Christ. I promised you as someone ready for intimacy and love, for sexual intimacy in that way. It's a metaphor. I'm not saying that we're going to go and have sex with Jesus in a physical sense, but the, the picture is one of deep, deep intimacy. Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice and let's give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself she has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would be built up as part of the body of Christ and have not just faith and belief in Jesus, the right things we need to believe. We need that. It's essential, but an experiential knowledge of God that draws on this, um, this intimate bride and husband coming together, such deep intimacy that even sexual intercourse is used for this word. Paul says in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19, and may you have the power to understand all, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience Experience the same word, yonosko. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power, deep intimacy in relationship with the triune God is the desire of God for us. This is Jesus's John 17 prayer for deep unity, experiential intimacy and relationship. And God is drawing us back to Eden with this, back 
to the relationship he had with Adam and Eve as he walked with them in the garden, the reality that they were quite literally naked before him and there was no shame, no self-consciousness, no wall, no hurt, no barriers. There was perfect unity and intimacy, a perfect knowing of each other in the same way that, you know, husbands know their wives' intimacy. It's like a skin on skin level intimacy. It's that same kind of intimacy intimacy that God talks about uh, in his relation to Moses. And he says, you know, I, I speak to other prophets in dreams and in visions, but to Moses, I speak face to face. Literally, the Hebrew is mouth to mouth. I speak to him mouth to mouth with intimacy and clarity and truth. This is the desire of God for your life and for my life is that, yes, we would know the right things and we would have unity with that, but that we would experience the, the, the knowledge of Christ, the love of Christ, deep intimacy with him. And we need both of these things. David Guzik says, face-to-face, talking about Moses, is a figure of speech telling the great and unhindered intimacy between God and Moses. He wasn't literally beholding the literal face of God, but he enjoyed direct, intimate conversation with the Lord. This is what Paul is saying we need for our lives. You need for your life. Next week, we're going to lean into what Paul means by the word maturity. What does it mean to be mature? In light of everything we've been discovering, what does it mean to be mature? We're going to talk about that next week. And we're going to talk about how we can know God intimately. What can we practice? What can we do and develop in our life that will help steward this call to know him? But know this, that God desires deep intimacy with you. Deep intimacy, a skin on skin, face to face, no barriers between you and him. That kind of deep knowing that utilizes all of your senses, that causes your whole life to come alive. The great desire of God is that you would know him experientially like this that you would know him with all of your mind. We need that. But Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, with your whole being. This is what it means to know God. And this is what he's called us Two. Let's pray. Father, even with all of this, we cannot simply, we cannot grasp the depth of intimacy you want to walk with us in. That your heart is that we are becoming prepared like a bride who is being made ready to meet her groom and that you have a great wedding feast that you're planning, a great coming together of the bride and groom and deeper levels of intimacy than we could ever really even fathom or understand here. And, but we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us how to be unified in our faith about Jesus, 
be unified in our belief about who he is, our, the doctrine we need to hold fast to and understand to, but also how to know him experientially and intimately. We pray this, Father, in your name, according to your will and your purpose, we ask for wisdom and revelation like you have told us we can. We ask for revelation on these things in Jesus' name. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church at and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.